listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Sean Whitfield. Sean spent most of his career in the oil distribution industry, and with that came a close connection to NASCAR. Sean ventured into media with his NASCAR-centric radio show, Racing Radio. In 2001, he launched Whitfield Media Group. Today, Whitfield Media Group produces five radio shows that air in the Chattanooga area, as well as a number of podcasts. Last year, Sean and his family sold Whitfield Oil, and he now focuses all of his time on his media company. Sean, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we get into your history of oil, racing, and media, let me ask you, what's in your morning cup? Well, I drink a lot of water. So that's often, but I don't know if I should say maybe a little bit in shame to admit, I uh, started drinking Monster Energy Oh wow! about two and a half years ago. I <laughs> can't think of anyone who doesn't need more energy. <laughs> and, and, and so I've gotten this bad habit of thinking I have to have a Monster Energy sugar-free ultraviolet in the morning. And how that happened was Monster Energy became a sponsor of my NASCAR show. And I had never even tried one of yeah. their products. They said, oh, we'll send you a bunch of samples. So the next thing I know, nine cases show up at my house. And then, of course, they kept that replenished. And I was just basically giving away to people. And I became good buddies with the region manager. And he said, man, you ought to try those purple ones. And I thought, okay, I'll try one. Well, I shouldn't have done it because... I've never done any kind of drugs like that, but it's almost like crack. <laughs> yeah. What was the flavor? Ultraviolet? Yeah, ultraviolet. It's You remember the candies, the Smarties candies that were in the rolls? Yeah, I hated can- those. Oh, did you? <laughs> oh, gosh. It, it, it kind of tastes something like that or maybe like a grape flavor. Oh, wow. But I'm not a coffee drinker, and I've been trying to stay away from Diet Coke. I used to think I had to have one of those in the morning, but I need to eliminate the bad habit and just stick to water, probably. You need a couple bad habits because you're a pretty healthy guy. Yeah. You do a lot of good things. I do. I uh, eat healthy. I try to live a healthy lifestyle. So if there is one thing that I could do better, it's probably eliminate the once a day monster in the morning, but it does give me that extra boost of energy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sean, thanks for being here. You've had an interesting journey. Grew up in a family business, but you were able to take that experience to fork off into different ventures. So if you would, start at the beginning. What was your first job at Whitfield Oil? Were you sweeping the warehouse? Uh, Cleaning bathrooms, sweeping the warehouse, mowing grass, doing weed eater work, washing the trucks, sweeping the warehouse, like you made comment. It was all those kind of things. My father started out with Pure Oil Company in the early 60s, and he came from a family of seven brothers and sisters. And so he came from a family that didn't have much. His father was not involved in his life. And he went to work for Pure Oil Company there at the Pipeline Terminal in St. Elmo, back when a lot of the major oil companies marketed direct and not through distributors. And then in 68, I believe it was, there was a gentleman by the name of Clint Smith that had Smith Oil Company in a little town called Chickamauga. My mom was pregnant with me, and my dad came home and says, listen, Mr. Smith wants me to come to work for him. He was what they called a commissioned agent for Pure Oil Company and later became Union 76. And he said he wants me to come to work for him, and I've accepted the job for $100 a week. 
my mom was pregnant with me and she says they lived in St. Elmo. And she said, what are you thinking? That's a little bitty town down in North Georgia. Why would you do that? And he said, well, I see this as a good opportunity. So a long story short, fast forward in a few years, he offered my father in the early 70s an interest in the company for $3,000. And my father went to the Bank of Chickamauga, which the Glenn family, David Glenn's family, Elder Glenn, and some of the other members of the Glenn family. Tom Glenn, who he and his brother own Elder's Ace Hardware. Correct. And so Mr. Glenn loaned him $3,000 from the Bank of Chickamauga. And that's what he started with. And what year was this? That was probably around 70, 71, and then it became Smith and Whitfield. And then my father ended up being able to borrow enough money and bought him out January 1st, 1976. And that was as an oil distributor? Yes. It was uh, pure oil at the time, and then it changed the name to Union 76. And when it was Union 76, do you still have those little antenna balls with the Union 76? I don't have any more of those, but I can't tell you how many cases of those <laughs> through my life that we have had. I used to order those by the cases. It was 300 a case, and it was $40 a case. We used to use those at giveaways and things like that that we did in the 90s with NASCAR stuff here in Chattanooga. But So my father uh, bought him out in January of 76. And then a few years later, he bought out a little distributor in Chickamauga called M&H Oil Company, and they were a Shell distributor when my father acquired the distributorship for Shell. So you had Union 76 and Shell. Had both. Nice. And this was back in the day where the industry or the business was known as TBA, Tires, Batteries, and Accessories. And that's when we had the full service stations. You went to your local service station, and they had full-service gasoline. You bought your tires there. You bought your accessories, your wiper blades and air filters and all that kind of stuff. So how did you get involved in the company beyond those early jobs, cleaning bathrooms? You did college, and then you decided to come home and work in the family business? I got out of school around 87, 88, and decided that that's what I wanted to do full-time. And um, my father didn't have a salesperson. He was still a small distributor in Chickamauga, and uh, that was when bulk lubricants was getting to be big, especially with a lot of industrial plants. I was 20, 21, right out of school and all, and I thought, well, I'm going to go out and start selling full-time. And so I did, and I was young, I was green, but I had a fair amount of success, and I remember picking up a, a large account, which was a big deal to me back in the day, Siskin Steel. And back at that time, they had a scrap metal yard, and they would go through about a 1,000 gallons a week of hydraulic oil. And uh, we just continued, you know, a momentum. And then in 1989, we received the award from Shell for one of the top 10 distributors in the country with the largest percentage of increase. Was your success partly due to you didn't know what you didn't know? And what I mean by that, you were young enough, pardon the phrase, dumb enough to just go in anywhere and present to them an opportunity to buy from you. Yeah, there was a lot of truth to that. However, my father sent me to, back in that day, was known as oil school. So I went to Houston, Texas to Shell Oil Company's West Hollow Research Center for several weeks at a time and made several trips and would go through their oil school, go through their refineries and through their West Hollow Research and Development Center. And then I did the same thing with Union 76. They had a refinery in just outside of Chicago. That career development, that product development was key to your ambition. Yeah, it sure was. And then I met a lot of people along those paths and established relationships. And I heard your interview with Matt Hollander. 
I can relate to a lot of the things that he said where you develop a network in the same thing you do, but you're not competing against one another in your market. We'll talk about that a little bit because Matt talked a lot about peer groups, but you're in the oil industry and there's different distributors around the country. So you Mm -hmm. guys have formed trade associations and councils. Did you have a particular mentor that helped guide you through the business? Yeah, we became very active with Shell as a distributor. And Shell was either the number one or number two oil company in the United States in the lubricant industry. And so I established a lot of relationships with, I guess you could call them colleagues, Mm -hmm. distributors in other markets. I remember in my 20s and early 30s, I was living in a world where everybody that I was working with with the oil companies was my father's age. You were the young guy in the room. Yeah, I was the young guy in the room that was young and aggressive and that everybody was sort of scratching their head going, man, what's that guy doing? (laughs) You know, he's, I've already, I've heard about him. Yeah. And then I was given the opportunity and I consider this a big accomplishment for me in my career in the oil business. I was given the opportunity to serve on the uh, Shell Distributor Council. And it's a position where you represent over 900 distributors in the United States. And there's only 16 that are a member and you have to be appointed, and there's a process of how you get on there. It's not one of those things where you're elected among your peers. You have to make an impression on people in management with Shell Oil in Houston, Texas, and then it filters on down the line. And so it was an honor just to be even considered. And then when I got the phone call that they asked if I would be willing to serve, and it gave me the opportunity once a quarter. I was going to Houston or I was going to New Orleans or Napa Valley. It seemed like a lot of times our meetings were at resorts. Oh, that's shocking. <laughs> yeah. It, and that was back in the day when the oil companies would spend money and a lot of travel. And it was nothing for the national convention for them to spend three or four million dollars. Different time, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly a different time. Those are also big learning opportunities, too, because you're with your peers, you're at a level, and you're talking about things that are germane to the industry and to each oil distributor. What were some of the things you learned through that process that helped you not necessarily advance your career in the oil industry, but help Whitfield Oil become more successful? Business is a team sport. And I relate this to NASCAR. It's a team industry. And I learned early on that I was not going to be successful unless I established myself with a good team. And so in 1990, I was selling by myself. My father set me with a goal. He said, if you you know reach this dollar figure on an annual sales volume, I'll let you hire a salesperson. And so the next thing I know, by 1993, I had six salespeople. Nice. And then I signed a distributorship contract with Valvoline, and we became the Valvoline distributor for East Tennessee and North Georgia. And we continued to progress with that. We also represented FINA, we represented Sitco, and we represented Union 76. Then I ended up working out a deal with Union 76, where we were one of the top 14 distributors with racing gasoline. And then that's how my involvement became in NASCAR in 1995, which I was a part of that for nine years. So it's just been, God's blessed me. Yeah. I was at the right place at the right time, was able to do things that I don't think I could even possibly accomplish today. It was a different time then. Did you, when you started, have this grand plan? Did you have it laid out or was it more, okay, I'm in this industry and I'm going to make the most of it. I'm not sure what the plan is, but I'm going to work my tail off. Yeah. 
I didn't really have a master plan because I had already exceeded and had accomplishments that I never imagined I would have. One thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to start making acquisitions of other companies, but that was something I could never get my father on board with because with that, that was going to require debt. And he wasn't a fan of debt, which I'm thankful for now. How old were you at the time that you had this? I want to acquire companies. Oh, I was probably late 20s. So late 20s, and you're talking to your dad about growing the business. Were you able to do that eventually with your dad? No, no, I never could sell him on that idea. (laughs) He always believed in growing the business the old-fashioned way, boots on the ground. And so we always had a sales staff. And my passion in the business was the sales and marketing side. There was a lot of people that we did business with. They maybe knew my father existed, but they didn't know who he was. They never talked to him, didn't even know his name. And then later on, when my brother came into business, the same thing. And that was because I was the one that was out there facing the customers. And I was started doing these big NASCAR events with US 101 back in 1993, all the way through the 90s. And I had realized that that was when NASCAR was really growing. Those were in the days of Dell Earnhardt. That was right before they signed their big TV contract with Fox in 2000. And I decided that, hey, we represent seven companies that are a part of NASCAR. We need to take NASCAR here locally, and we need to take that and run with it as our marketing tool. Let's talk about that because NASCAR is such a big part of the oil industry, and it really ties in your pivot into media. So you recognize NASCAR is growing. It's such a big part of what we do. We need to embrace it locally. How did you embrace it locally? Well, we represented seven different companies that were all a part of NASCAR. And that was back in the day when NASCAR was doing nothing but climbing. And so Sammy George, I know you know Sammy. I I owe a lot to Sammy and where I'm at today with media because Sammy saw how NASCAR and country music went together. US 101 was king of the hill back in the 90s. They're still on top of that hill, too. Yeah. Well, back then, they were hitting 28 and 30 shares. And so I partnered with them. And then uh, in 2000, you remember Clay Honeycutt? I sure do. And Sammy and I were talking. Those guys went to many races with me. And so those guys were personal friends. And we got into a conversation about me starting a NASCAR radio show. And so I began one in February 01. And it was the day after Dale Earnhardt was killed at Daytona. And I knew Dale, and I knew Dale well, because Dale was a spokesperson for us with Union 76. So I remember being on the plane Sunday night, flying back from Daytona. Oh, you had to be in a daze. Yeah, I I was. I was on the start-finish line in our suite and witnessed it all. I was there, and I remember thinking, man, Dale Earnhardt's gone. He He's no one ever imagined that. And then I was thinking, I've got to go back and do a NASCAR show tomorrow. Yeah, what do you do? Well, not only that, but I'd never done anything like that before. <laughs> so this is your debut show, and your debut show is the day after Dale Earnhardt dies unexpectedly exactly. at Daytona 500. I had never done media before. I had never hosted any kind of show. Even to this day, I have never been given any training or instruction on how to do radio or television. I had to learn it all on my own. It's just been by watching others. Well, and part of it comes naturally to you, too. There's, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. And, and so I would hate to go back and hear the first show. <laughs> and so this past February, I celebrated 22 years. That's of, incredible. Uh, Is that the longest running specialty radio show in Chattanooga? It's the second longest show in Chattanooga radio behind Sport Talk. 
to my knowledge. And you may be the one with the one consistent host too. Yeah, I've been at it 22 years and my co-host Casey Orr, he's been with me almost 18. So we joke that we've been together a lot longer than a lot of relationships. (laughs) (laughs) And then at 07, it went into television with Fox and then on and on. I was actually managing the Fox station when Fox got the contract for NASCAR. And I will tell you that that first Daytona 500 in Chattanooga did larger ratings than the Super Bowl. Oh, wow. And I remember that race because it was our first race, and I had gone to Memphis to see some family, and we're watching the Daytona 500 and watch the end of that race. And if I remember the wreck correctly, most people didn't think there was much that happened. No. There's been far worse wrecks since then, but it just goes to show how NASCAR has totally improved safety in the sport since those days. What's the device that they— The Hans device. The Hans device. That's the thing that straps the helmet to the— Yeah, it's the head restraint. Yeah. Wow. Those are incredible times. So it got you into media. You start doing the radio show. Go through that progression. You start doing the radio show in 2001, and slowly you start to do more media, don't you? I do. And one reason that I chose NASCAR as kind of our marketing vehicle is because when you look at NASCAR, people are covered in their uniforms with logos. Without corporate America, there is no NASCAR. And so I'm thinking, well, heck, I'm just going to take that philosophy and I'm going to bring it here local. Everybody's heard of it. I'm going to identify myself as the local NASCAR connection, Mm -hmm. even though I wasn't a huge deal in the sport, but I was involved in the sport. I mean, I was in the driver's meetings. I was in the garage area, was doing the fuel distribution. And so anyway, oh, one, I started the radio show. It was just a year to year thing. I didn't think it would last more than a year or two. Sammy and I agreed we would never leave each other in the middle of the season. If I didn't want to do it or he didn't want me to do it, we'd always end at the end of the season. And then at the beginning of 07 is when the conversation began with Fox 61, and we agreed to that, me and Casey and Chris Van Dyke, and we started doing the Racing Tonight or the Fox News at 10. We did that for three years. Then I took the show and I moved it over to Channel 3. And then I didn't do TV for a year or so, and then Lucan Communications approached me, and we did, I don't know, three or four years on Revan TV, and we were in 113 cities across U.S. and Puerto Rico. Do you miss TV? Sometimes I do, but not really. Radio is so much more fun. The TV, I felt like it was too much script, whereas with radio, you can just be yourself, kind of like you and I talking on this podcast. TV is very limiting. You're doing an interview, and you've got three minutes. What are you going to get out in three minutes, and how can you stitch that story together? Yeah, very much so. And then I began another radio show in 2009. And then sort of a long story short, today there's a total of five in the group. So what are the five you do? We've got Your Home Radio that's on every Saturday mornings from 8 to 9 on 98.1 The Lake and also in podcast form. And it's hosted by myself and Mandy Livingston. And it's a radio show about home improvement, home remodeling, home building, anything to do with a home. And it's been on the air five or six years. On the Move Radio's at 9 with myself, Amy Morrow, used to be at Channel 3, and Barry Quarter with the Chattanooga Times Free Press. And it's a show about what's going on in Chattanooga. And then Race and Talk Radio, which I started out as Vaveline Racing Radio, and I changed the name a few years ago. That's my NASCAR show, and it's on every Monday at 6 on Rock 105. And then we have Vital Health Radio, which is on Sunday mornings on 98.1 The Lake, and it's hosted by Ed Jones, the owner of Nutrition World, and Clint Powell. And then we have College Football Radio, which is on during August through the end of December. It's on Rock 105, Saturdays at 9. And it's nothing but SEC football. 
and it's hosted by Chris Goforth and Randy McMichael. And Randy played for the Georgia Bulldogs, went on to play for Nick Saban at Miami in the NFL, and spent 12 or 13 years in the NFL. That show had to do incredibly well this last year with Georgia with a repeat in Tennessee coming back from the ashes and being relevant again. Yeah, it's in its fourth year. And the thing I've learned about radio, is just like a business. It takes years to build a business. It takes years to build a radio audience. You know, what most people see with media is what's produced at the end. But really, it is a business. If you can't do it profitably, you're not going to do it. Oh, yeah. There's a lot more behind the scenes than people imagine. It's an interesting business, to say the least. I agree. One of the things I used to have commented, a lot of the experts in the radio world says, what do you mean you're doing a radio talk show on a music station? (laughs) You can't be successful with that. Yeah, you can. I've never had a radio show on a talk station. They've always been on music stations. So I proved a lot of people wrong. But I do get it. There is benefit to having a talk show on a talk station. Yeah, but you've got themed shows. Yeah. You know, in particular, like Rock 105 and NASCAR, Natural Fit. Mm -hmm. Well, and another thing, one of the things I'm proud of, too, is I've always been on Mondays at 6, which is still considered drive time. So to be on a prominent radio station during drive time on a Monday... I've always felt very proud of that. Yeah. So you recently sold Whitfield Oil, and you're now giving your full time and attention to Whitfield Media Group. Yes, we sold the company in March of 2021. I'm 54 years old, so I'm too young to retire and don't want to retire. The media business was always something on the side that I started in 01. And I look back and I go, how did it actually do as well as it did? It was always on automatic pilot. And so a few years ago, I built a new studio and opened up offices over on Lee Highway at One Park Place. And I knew that we was going to be selling the company a year or two out because of the industry changing and timing was right. So I decided, well, you know, I'm going to give this my full-time attention. So that's where I'm at today. I uh, also created the Chattanooga Fitness Expo, and we started two years ago. This is our third year, the bodybuilding and fitness world, and living a healthy life has always been a major part of my life. So do you bring the show into Chattanooga or do you go to other markets and do shows? No, it's strictly here in Chattanooga. We set it up like a ballroom style setting and we have it at the Embassy Suites Ballroom over at Hamilton Place. And we need a bigger venue, but there's no other ballroom in Chattanooga large enough. You think, well, there's got to be a ballroom in downtown Chattanooga. There's not. The Embassy Suites is the largest in Chattanooga. You can go to the convention center, but you lose that ballroom type feel. And that's what our niche is with this particular show. We got to get with Mitch Patel and tell him to build a hotel with a bigger ballroom. Yeah, I think the embassy <laughs> is like 6,500. Wow. There's the Chattanooga and the Weston. Their ballrooms are not as big as the embassy suites. I didn't know that. Yeah. What is it you learned early in your career that's not just making successful through your career, but now that you're in the media business and you're producing events? What are some of those takeaways from the oil business that you keep with you? Back to what I said earlier about having a successful team. I refer NASCAR to this because a lot of people think, well, the driver is where the success comes in NASCAR. Well, that's not true. The driver is a huge component of the success of a team winning a race, but it's a team effort. You take Joe Gibbs Racing, for example, they've got four drivers, Joe Gibbs employs almost 500 people, engineers and support staff and people in research and development, and and the list goes on. And so I've always recognized early in my career that 
you need to surround yourself with a successful team and having good people and having people to have a vision and then being open to listen. I can't tell you how many times I walked in my sales manager's office and I've already got an idea of how we're going to handle something. And we'll start our conversation. He'll say, well, Sean, have you thought about this? Well, you know, if we do this, then this was what could happen. And I've lost track of how many times I walked out of his office and our plan had changed from what I was convinced it was going to be when we walked in. So I think as a leader and somebody in a management role, you got to be willing to listen and you got to be willing to adapt and accept the talent of other people because they can be the strengths when that's your weakness. That's such an important point because so many, particularly new managers, think, well, if it's not my idea, they're going to think that I'm not smart enough or I'm not working hard enough in this mm-hmm. job. And, and really your point of being able to listen and to take that input and to put it in a direction that maybe you didn't think of first, but is the right direction. Yeah. Early in my career, I thought I always had to be the one doing all the talking. And then later in my career, I realized, you know, I need to be the one that does all the listening. And uh, I found out that worked a little better. <laughs> What's the old saying? That's why God gave you two ears and one mouth? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because did. you should listen twice as much as you talk. And that's only taken me a number of years to figure out. <laughs> and I learned early in my career with sales and marketing, the answer is always no, unless you ask. That's a great point. And it's just so simple, but it means so much in life and in business, especially business. And even when you ask, and if you get a no, that just means you got to ask a few more times because there's a yes down there somewhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. What's on the horizon for Whitfield Media Group? Oh, my goodness. Well, we just built new offices. We just built a new studio. We'll probably be adding video in the near future. We're going to be debuting at least two new podcasts this year. Probably going to be starting some YouTube channels. Those are just the things I know about. Mm-hmm. I always think, well, there's all these things that happened that I didn't know about, I didn't see coming. And that's kind of the way my life has gone. If I looked at my life and looked at all the things I've done, there's a lot of it that was never planned. It's just one link to the next link to the next link. So many people think you have to have this grand plan laid out mm-hmm. where it's more about tackling what's in front of you and then not necessarily seeing what's next, but evaluating those opportunities. And if you had not seen the value of the branding in NASCAR and what they were able to do, you might not have gone down the media path. Yeah. Had it not been for my involvement in NASCAR, I wouldn't be where I'm sitting today as far as Whitfield Media Group. Well, we're glad you're sitting with us. Yeah. One last question for you. Sure. Think about it. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is really important for a happy life? I would say keep God in your life. I grew up in a very Southern Baptist family, Mm -hmm. and I feel like God has blessed me with everything that I have, and uh, I don't take anything for granted. It could all be gone tomorrow. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. So I would say uh, stay focused in your faith and keep God in your life. Great advice. Sean, you've been a good friend. Continue to be a good friend. I appreciate you coming on My Morning Cup today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.